0: Well, good morning, OB Joyful Church. It is good to be with you. Uh, can't wait till Saturday when we get to give uh, Being Together a try. Again, that is uh, coming right up. And so be sure and register. Those spots are going quickly. Um, we're uh, we're really looking forward to that. You know, this morning's message and the passage that we're looking at is, is not about uh, the things that are going on in our world right now, except that I think that the truth of it would be is going to be very helpful for each of us to be uh, internalizing and thinking about uh, what we're seeing in the life of Isaiah and what God reveals to him. But I do want to say this about it: uh, this whole, uh, this whole situation where reconciliation is so important, uh, and it's something that we've said over and over at Ob Joyful Church, and we see over and over in the Scripture and. So two things. Uh, Reconciliation is costly. Um, So I want want to ask you to think about that. Reconciliation is costly. And uh, the second thing is this. Reconciliation requires humility. So uh, we see that all throughout the Scripture. We're going to see it some today. But as we're trying to figure out how to to proceed in this, uh, those are two things we have to remember. Reconciliation is very costly. And reconciliation requires humility. So uh, let's think about those things. Um, But let's turn to the the passages that we have for today. Uh, So we're in this series that we're calling Disruption. We're looking at different of the Uh, Hebrew prophets and trying to understand what life was like for them and the world that they spoke into and the message that they had to share from the mouth of God. And So we talked about Jesus who sets us all up and points us to Moses. And then we we looked at Moses, we looked at Samuel last week, we looked at Elijah this week, we're going to see the life of Isaiah and the message of Isaiah. Last week, when we looked at Elijah, Elijah is a guy that within the narrative of his story, we can see what he felt. He had these incredible highs. He did things that took boldness. Uh, I just can't imagine for God just the bravery that he had. And then suddenly he's uh, sidelined in depression and wondering why he matters and if anything he's ever done is any good. And he says, "God, just take me." You know, he. You feel this uh, the p- very personal and private side of what it was like for Elijah to be this prophet of God. And I, f- I hope that we. As we looked at it last week, could could get that idea of of connecting with him. Uh, Isaiah is a little bit different. We don't have a whole lot of his story. We have a lot of his message. He's a long uh, book, but <clears throat> we don't get much more than that. He was married. He had kids. Uh, his feelings about what are communicate what he communicates aren't really a big part of the story. Uh, so he's different, but we can learn from him, especially in the moment we're going to look at in chapter six where we have his calling and God is is introducing him to himself and then then sending him out into his role uh, with the Israelite people. Just real briefly, the situation of the Israelites, of Israel at that time, uh, of God's people was that they had had about 50 years of peace. Uh, This is the kingdom of Judah under uh, uh, King Uzziah And this is about 600 years before the arrival of Christ. So that maybe gets you a bit of a a setting. Uh, Uzziah has died and his son is now stepping into his role. And they've had, like I said, they've had some peace. Uh, Assyria though is rising in the east and it looks like things are going to get rough for the Hebrew people. And so uh, uh, this, this, relative economic and uh, social security that they felt is about to come to an end and Isaiah is speaking into that time uh, so as I look at the book it's it's a little bit hard to see and uh, much about the people except that they had definitely become complacent in how they understood their relationship with God. Uh, They had followed after other gods, and this was constantly something they were doing. But there was a sense of, uh, when I read it, a sense of complacency or taking God for granted that seems to resonate with me and possibly with you um, when things are comfortable. Uh, This is the setting that Isaiah steps into. Uh, and he's called to be a prophet. This this place in chapter 6 that Jorge read to us, it's short, but it's one of the most f- famous interactions between God and man, and it's really fascinating. There's so much there, and, and as usual, we're just going to scratch the surface. But here's the main thing that I want to ask you guys to do with me um, is to reset our focus on who God is. Um, it... it as I've looked at this, I've been thinking about all these situations that we've been in a month of the COVID thing, the new uh, struggles that we're having globally around issues of race and rights and freedom. Uh, I don't think there can be a better solution than what happens with Isaiah when God brings him into his presence and he says, look at me, God says, look at me, this is who I am. And when we're in that place, we're naturally drawn to be in a spot of humility. And we, uh, in this story, are going to see this incredible uh, reconciliation that happens in in the message in the moment in chapter 6 and the message that Isaiah has throughout his story. Um, We get distracted. We get complacent. We choose other kings besides the one true king. Uh, and we need to see him again as if he is new to us. So uh, when I say we need to focus on who God really is, I want to just I ask you if you can connect with this story and and see the true king and see how that impacts your heart. Uh, I have a friend, his name's Scott Brickert. Many of you know him. He's a longtime Christian and part of OB Joyful Church. And I, I think it was this last week, Uh, he did something that he's been wanting to do for a really long time. He'd studied, uh, he's a photographer, and he'd studied how to take pictures of the stars. And so he sent a picture to our men's small group of this. And and forgive me, Scott, if you're watching this, if I get this all messed up and show your picture in the wrong orientation and everything. But what he learned was that uh, taking a picture of the stars with quality and depth is really hard to do because here's the fact, you guys, the Earth is turning; it's rotating. This is this is science. Yes, thank you. Um, so he needed a special mount for the camera to actually allow it to follow whatever point in the stars that he he chose for him, uh, his subject. And so he he bought that thing. He sets it up. And then he said, not only does it require that, but when you take a picture like this over time, there's a whole bunch of noise that comes in. And then that has to be filtered out so that you actually see what you are looking at. You, you get rid of all of everything that's around. You've you've completely just dis- pulled out all of the distractions and you see this thing. And I want to show you this picture. It's pretty amazing. So, Lorray, can you pop that up real quick? It's just a beautiful picture of, I think it's the Milky Way, but again... Uh, science apparently is not my thing. Um, let me read to you from Psalm 19, one and two. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. And I was just encouraged by that picture that Scott took and combining it with this passage because it it's ties in so well with what God shows Isaiah, uh, He shows him His Majesty, His power, His holiness, His mercy, and His goodness. Uh, all in this, just these very few verses that we're going to look at today, and it just it those the picture of uh, the sky that Scott took it was so beautiful, and this uh, this story from Isaiah, they they just sink up in proclaiming the glory of God and our place in relation to Him. So three things I hope will come into view for you and, that, and we'll focus on. One is God's presence, another is God's power, and then God's plan. So let's start with that idea, of this presence. Um, so we're, gonna, we're just going to focus on the presence of God and how he reveals himself to Isaiah in this moment. So uh, as I said, the king Uzziah is transitioning. He's died and a new, a new king, his son, is coming into place. And that's how the passage starts. And the way that uh, Isaiah describes everything he's going to say about Uzziah, is he says this: Uzziah died. That's it. That's the story of Uzziah. Uh, there's much more in other parts of the scripture, but that's how Uzziah. I mean, Isaiah sets this up. Uh, and also, as I mentioned, it's important to note in this transition that uh, between kings that things had been relatively good in the kingdom. They were basically safe. They had decent economy for something like 50 years. And I can almost bet you that they took that as blessing from God. Like, we're doing great. There's a blessing from God. But I wonder if rather than a blessing, that it was just forbearance for their sin. And I think that's uh, something that we need to think about uh, globally, or as Americans as well. Uh, is this a blessing, or is it forbearance? Uh, now, Isaiah re- receives this vision from God. He's introduced to the true king, and he describes it like this. So the first words were, this, were these, Uzziah died. And then, in the rest of uh, the beginning of chapter 6, he says... I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the thresholds of the temple shook with the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. This is the contrast between Uzziah and the God of the universe. One died, and the other's glory is eternal and fills the temple, fills the whole earth. This is not a king of any humankind. You know, uh, if you've seen many of the messages that I've given I always try to imagine what it was like to be in that exact situation, and most of the time, it seems like it's something very regular, some, something about how amazingly common Christ made himself in order to interact with us, and the dust on people's shoes, and the small room, and the, you know, those kind of things. This is really the opposite, and very hard, I think, to understand, like, to to picture it, I just to me, I think anything that comes into my mind is going to be too small. But let's let's just try for a moment. Uh, Isaiah is in some kind of grand temple. Uh, it's not described, though, but it says that God is lifted high up above and that the train of his robe fills the whole place. So there's just this mag- majestic presence of God. And above him are these seraphim that aren't described like this anywhere else or aren't named like this anywhere else in Scripture. They're majestic, they're powerful, they're beautiful, and they're calling out the holiness of God. Now, uh, this idea of holiness, we could spend weeks on, and we're just going to get one little point on the holiness of God. Uh, but it's critical to how we understand who He is and what and what He's doing. Uh, his holiness is absolute. It's perfect. It's morally and spiritually and creatively above all other things and completely separate from us. It's the standard for all things. Uh, now, I mean, this is going to sound pretty, pretty lame as a way to describe this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, it's never stopped me before. Uh, <laughs> I love to have conversations with my friend Holden McCray about science. And uh, Holden is a scientist, and as we've already discovered, I am not. Uh, I love to tease him about the insufficiencies of the metric system. I mean, who needs some base 10 system when we have like 12 inches and a foot? I mean, It doesn't make any sense. I keep telling him that the imperial system is going to take over the world. That's actually, we're headed back to that, and pretty soon he's going to be measuring things in like pecs and bushels and things like that, which are a part of the imperial system. Um, Base 10 just makes science too easy. Now, I know deep down inside he agrees with me, but he puts up this front, okay? Uh, Here's the thing. When we're really doing science, when we're really, people are really trying to discover, you can't just uh, have no standard. You have to have a standard. You have to be able to measure things, right? Right and pure and good have a standard, they don't just exist in uh, just some kind of moral morass. There is right, there is good, there is purity. And we can't guess at those things. They require an exact measurement of what they are. Uh, Not any more than we can uh, measure the creation that God has given us in subatomic particles. These things had to be set up precisely and perfectly and measured exactly or they don't work. Everything doesn't work unless it is done perfectly in creation, and that is what God has brought to us, a measure that his holiness has provided. We need a God who is perfect and above all things as the measure for everything that we understand in this world. Uh, But God is, is showing Isaiah something in this, when they're calling out his holiness, He's showing Isaiah, he's showing the people, he's showing us through the words of Isaiah that there is a king. There is one king, he's not a politician. He's a king who has authority over all things, from the smallest uh, bit of creation all the way through any moral uh, uh, situation that we can imagine. He is above all things. Uzziah is is a king with a small K. This is the king. So I have a question for you as we leave this point of God's presence. Uh, If there is one true God, one true king, is he your king? Or do you have a constellation of other desires and accomplishments and goals that actually do rule you? Is he your king? Or do you have others? Do you rule you or does he? So, with Isaiah, there is no question in this moment of who is the king. Yahweh, God of the universe, that he sees in some sense, God is revealing himself to him, to Isaiah, there, is the king. So, we've got his presence that draws him towards himself and his holiness, and then his power. So, let's talk about this power that he has. Okay, visually, Isaiah is aware of God's majesty, it's overwhelming. Audibly, he hears the words of the seraphim calling out the identity of God in his holiness. And he feels the thundering of the foundations from the voice of this, uh, from the seraphim. Uh, but what strikes Isaiah in that moment is his own moral unpreparedness to stand before a holy God. And here's what he says in verse five of chapter six. And I said, woe is me for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So in this translation, in the ESV, he says, "I'm lost." In other translations, it says, "I'm undone. I'm completely shattered by this situation." He recognizes that he should not live after seeing and experiencing the holiness of God. And what he does is he calls it the. Uh, he calls his sin unclean lips, and I think that's a really unusual way to describe that. In fact, if you look at the scripture, it, it is a little bit unusual. Uh, he uh, he uses that uh, actually earlier in his uh, writings, and in, in he'll say uh, he says that the words of my people, the Israelite or the Hebrew people, the the lips that uh, the words that are that come from us, uh, sp- the the lips of our Wow. Anyway, he's he's, as you can see, he's metaphorically putting this on lips, Uh, and he does it in his script, in his uh, words from God, and it's it's really interesting that he does that. But you know, you almost imagine uh, a little kid reading this, and the kid reads well that he says, you know, I'm a man of unclean lips. I mean, literally, I mean, if I was five, I'd be like, well, does he have like spaghettios on his chin? You know, what does this mean? Um, well, no, he, he's saying that the words of our mouths betray our hearts. The words of our mouths uh, it, it are the things that are precursors to our actions. And so I, this is Isaiah's way of saying uh or trying to be honest about who he is and what's happening in his heart. So that's his metaphor. Now, you have to picture what happens next. And again, it's hard to to do, but it says that this seraphim, this amazing creature that is worshiping God, uh, hears Isaiah's words. Isaiah says, I'm unclean. And you can almost see Isaiah backing up and, and crouching down in the seraphim takes tongs it says with this hot coal from the altar of God and I'm just going to tell you the altar of God with coals on it has got to be legit right so he takes that coal and he's going towards Isaiah now what's Isaiah thinking is going to happen here I freak up I freak out when a bee flies towards me right so here comes this amazing creature of God with a, a hot coal from the altar of God and he he places it on isaiah 's mouth, and he says, "Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. That had to be the last thing that Isaiah was expecting to happen but what's what's amazing to me is that in this situation in this vision that somehow Isaiah is at, interacting with the God of the universe uh, that God allows Isaiah's metaphor to be the one that he comes to him with. And and there's an understanding there in communication. It just, I think it's powerful. He says, you're no longer guilty. Your sin has been removed. You are cleaned and you're acceptable. When Isaiah came into that place, he was not acceptable. But he recognized his need in humility because of the greatness and the holiness of God. And God took care of the sin. God took care of it. Do you see the foreshadowing of the gospel in this? See, uh, Isaiah's mission, much of it would be to communicate about who Jesus was to give specific uh, prophetic utterance to to lead us to see who Jesus was as the Messiah, like where he would be born, how he would die, all kinds of things that we see later in the book of Isaiah. It's just, it's beautiful. And here's the thing, Uh, Jesus when he sacrificed himself, he provided the power for that coal, that uh, figurative thing that God did for Isaiah, to actually allow forgiveness. Jesus provides forgiveness, past, present, and future. So the work that God did right there to, to, uh, to free Isaiah from his sin was empowered by Christ in Isaiah is going to spend a lot of his career talking about Jesus. It's just, it's cool how how this is all tied together. Jesus took away the sin, took away his sin, and he destroyed the consequences of it forever. And Isaiah is going to prepare us for that as part of his mission. So we see the power of God uh, in this interaction that he has, and he forgives the sin, He he cleanses Isaiah. And so we've seen the presence, the power, and now the plan of God. Uh, Look at me, look with me at at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now, again, imagine the situation. The seraphim are apparently back in place. And God speaks into this that vast area and he says, who will go? And he uses that plural of majesty, who will go for us? And, you know, Isaiah is there apparently alone um, and wondering if there might, what, who God may be re- referring to, who will go for us. Uh, there's no clarification about what God is asking for. And Isaiah simply says this, here I am here I am. It's like, I hope he notices me down here because I'm ready. Have you ever been in a board meeting that you volunteer for or at a staff meeting and the chairman says something like, okay, we've got this big project and we need somebody to take it on. And you look around the table and everybody's like trying to melt. Uh, This is the opposite. There's no description of what the role is or how hard it's going to be or how dangerous, which it certainly was. But Isaiah says, here I am. And then, as you know, he says, send me. I'll go. Uh, Because of who you are, God, I will go. So another question of application for each of us, especially for me, is this. is, Is there a place... Is there an aspect of your life where you know that God has said something like this? Who will go? Who will go? And you have the opportunity to say, yeah, that's, that's me. Um, and because of who you are, God, and because you are greater than anything else, because you are my king and because you're the eternal creator, the upholder of all things that are right, good, and holy, I will go. God's purpose is to Redeem. And he uses the message of Isaiah to redeem his people there, and he gives them the he gives Isaiah the words to speak about the final redemption of men through Jesus Christ. So that's the plan of God that I did, that uh, that Isaiah uh, signs up to to take part in. The mission that he gets is a tough one, and if you look and read the book of Isaiah, the things that he said were were dangerous things. It's amazing that he survived. Uh, he gave a lot of message of condemnation around uh, sin and rebellion against God, against injustice that the Hebrew people, in the way that they treated people that they considered less than. And he gives a strong message about who Jesus is. and the work that Jesus will do on their behalf and on our behalf. It is the work of Christ and the plan of God in his holiness that allows Isaiah to become clean. And it's that same power that if we believe within it, that re- allows us to be redeemed and made clean. So I want to challenge you, O be Joyful Church. May our focus be on the true God of the universe, recognizing who he really is, taking the time to absorb uh, and, and, and see him as king. And may we look deeply into his truth and see him fully. May He be our one true king. We pray with me. God, we ask that you would be our king. You are, but we would see you as that, or that we would understand that we, we live in your forbearance. Uh, God, that we would uh, see our uncleanness and be so grateful for Jesus and what he's done for us. It's in his name we pray, amen.